Uh, that text, that passage, um, which is on page 883 in the Pew Bible, is Luke chapter 22. And we'll read from verse 54 to the close of that chapter. Uh, please hear this. Uh, this is the word of God. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then they seized him, that is Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light, looking closely at him, said, This man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also were one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter answered, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and they uh, and they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many things against him, blaspheming him. When they had come, the assembly of the elders and the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, I tell you, you will not believe and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. This is God's word. You may be seated. Now let me pray one more time asking his help. Uh, Lord, we do not uh, want to presume upon you. We, we do cry out to you. We ask simply that you uh, would be merciful to communicate uh, through this ancient, uh, peculiar at times, means of grace. That you would be in my speaking. That you would be by your spirit in our, our hearing. Would you please work uh, in, in spite of me. Uh, that you would have the light of your, of your son Jesus shine bright. For it's in his name and for his sake that we ask it. Amen. <clears throat> never say, never say, never. There's certainly a warning in that statement. Never say, never. It's a, it's a humble acknowledgement of, of a number of things, but I think two stand out in, in, in mind. When we say never say never, we're communicating two things. The uncertainty of the future. I mean, it's certain to come, but the uncertainty of what we know about the future. And also the frailty of humanity. It's the uncertainty of the future and it's the frailty of humanity when we say never say never. Last week we read of how Jesus foretells, clearly he's communicating something to his disciples as they approach Jerusalem and then as they get closer and closer at the close of Passion Week to his arrest, that happened last week. Jesus, when they were praying together in the garden, said, 
Please stay awake. Be alert. Now, he's not saying just for his own sake, that would help, but, but for their sake. Stay alert and stay awake that you may not fall into temptation. He says that multiple times just prior to the passage we read. He knows that they will be tempted to uh, fear man. Uh, to, to As the days progress and certainly after the crucifixion, that their alignment with Jesus will be uh, a threat to them. That it will, it, it will uh, tempt them to fall away and to uh, disown him. And he says, and some of you will. All of you will, but in particular, uh, he says, one of them at the Last Supper. And they all, of course, deny it. Some of them have a moment of humility. They say, well, maybe it is me. But at the end of the day, we see in particular, uh, Peter responds in verse 33, just prior to this. Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison or to death. Oswald Chambers, who's got some wonderful devotional material, uh, pastor, he writes this. You have remained true to God under great and intense trials. Now, beware of the undercurrent. Do not be abnormally examining your inner self, looking forward with dread, but stay alert. Keep your memory sharp before the Lord. Unguarded strength is actually a double weakness. Because that is where the least likely temptations will be effective in sapping strength. The Bible characters stumbled over their strong points, never their weak ones. Let me me just, two, two phrases in there, let me just say again. Unguarded strength is actually a double weakness. And then the last thing there. The Bible characters stumbled over their strong points, never their weak ones. Peter was zealous. Peter was sincere. Peter was, uh, Peter was, was all gung-ho. Friends, we, we've all been tested. We will be tested. We will face trials. Uh, we will, you know, you, will we remain true to the Lord? Will we remain true to the conscience that God has given us, the law that God has has given to us. Not, not just on the average day, but in the extraordinary moments of the peaks and in the, the dark places of the valley. Will we remain true to Christ? Will we love Christ? Will we own Christ? Will we follow Christ Jesus? Some of you have failed Jesus. In the face of simple questions or in the face of other temptations, some of you, some of us, have failed Jesus because we were in some ways just simply preoccupied with things of the creation more than the creator. Some of us have failed because we were were preoccupied with a particular sin that looked more appealing. I mean, for a moment than following Jesus or obeying our conscience. Perhaps some of you, that's, that's, you're in that moment But you've yet to crumble internally because externally you haven't been caught or exposed yet. Some of you may have absolutely no concern with what I'm talking about altogether because you won't deny Christ because you've never truly owned Christ. I don't mean that in a snarky way. 
You've not known him. You have not trusted him. My prayer is that you will be uh, persuaded, not dissuaded today when you hear about the high cost of following Jesus, that it will draw you in, not just push you away. That's the Lord's work. Persuaded by the love, the faithfulness of Jesus, because every single one of us to a person is acquainted with failure, guilt, and shame. Every single person here. I think I've told this story to you before. When I was a young man, I remember this is, you know, I was in grade school. It's the 80s. There was a young boy that my brother and I were friends with, and they lived in this old historic mansion down the street. And we used to love to play in that house. I remember one day I was walking uh, through, and uh, we were navigating in through his older brother's room. His older brother wasn't a particularly nice guy. And I caught out of the corner of my eyes a stack of cash in a cup that was sitting up on a dresser or something. And I walked through. And then I thought to myself, you know what? I could just take that cash and I could keep it. And no one would know. So I turned around and I'm not going to lie. My heart beat, you know, it, 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 it was, uh, whew, you know, I was, it was, I was pulsing, you know, I was my... You know, it was going to be a test of my character and my conscience when that thought entered my head. And I turned around and I took the money. And part of the thrill was just leaving the house, thinking I've gotten away with it. But things began to sour. And it's not because I got caught. Things began to sour. The first thing that I felt, I'm just going to give you, this is an anatomy of sin in some ways and how we deal with that. I, I, I left there and I felt strangely uh, distant from the fellowship of this family. There was fear. I realized that even when I felt completely assured that I wasn't to get caught internally, there was shame and guilt. I realized in that moment and the days after that sin leads to sin. Lies lead to lies and more lies because I had to concoct a story for where this money just magically appeared from. My mom said, I remember, uh, well, that's, that's neat. Uh, you found the, the $40 at uh, school under some bleacher or something. Now you can use it on our Disney trip. And I did. Of course, you know, $40 even in the 80s didn't go that far at Disney. But I bought a goofy hat. And I remember walking around feeling really stupid with those goofy ears. Because I couldn't enjoy it. I had bought it with stolen money. His brother, weeks later... For one reason or another, and I have no idea why, looked at me and accused me of stealing his money. And I did not have the courage. I was, I was inclined to at one point in the conversation, but I just stood there speechless, largely, had no courage to confess what I had done and tell the truth. On the way to church, our kids confessed two of their sins. I won't name what they are or the children associated with them, but they had done something with a note from their teacher that just threw it away. And I, I'm sure that that was okay because that was way back in kindergarten. And there's a reason that I chose my story because it goes way back to the 80s. But I could tell you that's a little bit distant, right? It's, it's, it's a little, but the truth is I could tell you examples of how temptation and guilt and shame have worked in my own life. Sin that's deceived me, sin that's lead, has led me to deceive my own wife. 
But that's a little too painful and embarrassing, so I'm not going to go there. Isn't sin remarkably deceitful? Think of why Jesus chooses the words that he does when he describes sin. Deceitful. I think there's too many instances when people will say and do just about anything to save face and to stay alive. But it backfires. What do you do with your guilt and shame? That's a question I've been asking for a dozen years, having lived on the South Shore. I try to use it as a way, oftentimes, to introduce the gospel and talk about what Jesus has done for me and for them if they would trust him. What do you do with your failure? Failures, by the way, often come in seasons of of stress and distraction and discouragement, of deep trials of various form. It seems... Like what we have in view here is, is one trial, but really it's, it's two trials that are in view. And I've listed them there in the order of service. There's Peter's trial, then there's Jesus' trial. Peter, I do believe, had every single intention of being faithful. But obviously he was caught off guard. He comes... There's, a, a, I mean, there's enough, I mean, there, there must have been enough courage that he didn't just completely ghost. He, he traveled along and made his, he kind of meandered into the company of these people uh, who had Jesus. But he's caught off guard and he denies Jesus and then it escalates and then it leads to more lies. He pleads with some degree of ignorance. If you look there in verse 54, you know, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about, who you're talking about. I don't know the man, but then it escalates, Right? They're not persuaded. What does it say in verse 59? Look there. He's like, I know what you are. You're a Galilean. It's like when people come up to me and it happens literally every single week. When did you move here from the south? I know it's the accent. I, you know, I can't shake it. Let me tell you, they looked at Peter and they said, Peter, you're a country boy. You came to Jerusalem like all the other Galileans during Passover But we know you're one of the disciples. We can just hear it in your accent. You're from Galilee. You're one of Jesus' men. Peter had to crumble and fall. It was going to happen. For him it needed to happen. To expose that under trial, he was building his discipleship of Jesus upon Peter. Himself. He's been, Peter has been relying upon his own strength, his own zeal and enthusiasm, his own words and talk. He's been relying upon his own will and emotions, even his bravery. Remember last week? What happened in the garden when they came to arrest Jesus? Someone busted out a sword and cut off the dude's ear. Who was that? Well, Luke didn't tell us. Luke was more focused on the ear being healed uh, because he's a physician. But other gospels tell us it was Peter. So Peter, I want to believe the sincerity that you will go to prison and die with Jesus. But here you are, you've denied him. Three times. Verse 62 in our text here, what does it say? 
He went out and he wept bitterly. He was literally at that moment undone with a form of grief and sorrow. Is that good? Well, of course it is. Is that uh, sufficient? It might be. Second Corinthians, this is a passage I've gone to many a time in trying to walk with people. And unfortunately, I do tend to get a front row seat to some of these failures. And there's a very fine distinction that the Apostle Paul makes in 2 Corinthians uh, 7, verse 9. Let me just read a few of the verses. But I encourage you to go back and read it in its context in full. But 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9, the Apostle Paul writes, As it is, I rejoice not because you were aggrieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffer no loss through it. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So there's a distinction between godly grief and worldly grief. Worldly grief, I highlight this, I'm sure I've said to you, is I'm sorry that I have these consequences. I'm sorry that I got caught. I'm sorry that, you know, that, that the ways the things have landed uh, for me. It's, it's rather... Self-centered, a godly sorrow is, by definition, centered on God. It also has a different outworking. Peter here, the trial has exposed his self-confidence. It humbled him to the point of life and repentance and turning to God. You can contrast that with a different trial. It's not taken up by Luke right here in our passage. But we know there was another person that did betray Jesus. Isn't that correct? And what happened with Judas? Did Judas have a worldly sorrow or godly sorrow? Or did he have no sorrow? Well, we know he had sorrow. He wanted to pay it back. He felt distraught. He was was dismayed. But it was not godly sorrow. Why? Because godly sorrow leads to life. And what happened to Peter? Excuse me, to Judas, not Peter. He killed himself. himself. There are too many examples of how grief and sorrow over sin can be manifest in different ways. I remember one time, and maybe this came to mind partly because I had another couple come to me this week that is in another uh, sister church asking for marriage counseling. They know that I work with conflicted couples. It reminded me of one time when a husband had, had really screwed up. Many years had treated his wife poorly. He finally acknowledged his guilt, his unfaithfulness, his shame. But when his wife said to him, please, Just come on home. I forgive you. Let's be a family. He couldn't. He wouldn't. What Peter possesses is a grief that leads to repentance. What Judas had led to simply remorse. There's lots more that can be said. And just drawing out that contrast alone between Peter and and his failures and Judas and his. 
But really what I want us to see that Luke would have us see is how it actually is against in comparison to Jesus' trial that we pick up with here in this next uh, set of verses, beginning in verse 63. Jesus' trial, really in some ways, it's important to remember that Jesus has already endured quite a bit of trials because as we read uh, previous in the chapter, he was in the garden in agony and crying out to God, Lord, you know, if this cup of, of wrath, this, this could pass from me, knowing that he would suffer the cross, knowing that in the name of love, this is what they had agreed upon. They being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God, a redemptive plan. But if it could, in his frailty, Jesus in his humanity is, is just sweating and in consternation and in, and in earnest prayer before God agonizing over these things. And he remains strong because we know at the conclusion he says, not my will, But Father, yours be done. That's kind of the pretrial. But then the interrogation here starts to happen. He's been arrested. It gets more physical. Uh, uh, Luke provides the body cam footage for us, uh, if you will. Verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They blindfolded him. You know, why don't you just tell us? Why don't you, you know everything. Why don't you tell us? Who is it that hits you? They mock him. Then having lost a great deal of physical strength and blood, he appears before the Jewish high priest of the Sanhedrin in verse 66. They have guards. They, you know, we, we also know that they had false witnesses all set up, ready to go. This is the scene. What is in view? Well, the conclusion of the interrogation tells us what they were aiming for. Look just a few verses down into chapter 23, verse 2. What does it say? This is what they were aiming at. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is is Christ as a king. Now, remember, the Jews, they had their law, but they could not execute various forms of punishment because they were under the rule of the, uh, the oppressive Romans. So they have to come and appeal to the Romans to, uh, to exact justice that they cannot. I think this is actually where it's helpful then to, to kind of contrast Peter's trial with Jesus' trial or this preliminary trial. We'll get into more of the trial uh, next week in chapter 23. But here they are, right? Like Jesus is falsely accused of sedition and blasphemy. What is Peter charged with? The truth. You are one of the disciples. Okay, so there there it is. Jesus is questioned by high governing officials with great power. And Peter is questioned by a little slave girl. And he folds. Which takes us back to to a question that Jesus asks back in Luke chapter 9. When it's saying, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am back in chapter nine? Who do the crowd say that I am? Jesus offers to the disciples and they answer John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say one of the prophets of old is risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Question for all of us down through the ages. Those who would 
read the Bible, come to church, uh, identify themselves as Christians, uh, locate themselves as a disciple of Jesus. Really, it, there are so many crossroads and times that it comes back to this question. In these moments, again, in the valley or the peaks, who do you say that he, Jesus, is? Jesus says, excuse me, Peter says to Jesus, you're the Christ of God. He's the first person to open his mouth, the loudest voice, the most uh, exuberant, perhaps. Yes, yes, yes. Of course, you are not only Jesus of Nazareth, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But now Peter is hiding. Peter is betrayed him. Jesus is alone. Unlike Peter, he's been arrested. He's been beaten. Now let's go back to our text here. Verse 66. And the, those, those closing verses there. Jesus is interrogated before the council. Then it says there in verse 67. Uh, they, just, they just want to get right to the point. Tell us if you are the Christ. Verse, in verses 70 and 71. Let me just read it again. So they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? They're charging him. Hurry up. We just want to just pin this on you. You're, you're being a blasphemer. We want you to be charged and dealt with and done away with. You're a threat to us. We want nothing to do with you. They're blinded by their sin and their own agenda. They can't see. But of course, this is Jesus, right? You know, in many ways, Jesus is offering himself up to be sacrificed and die on the cross. He'd already grappled with the reality of that, thinking about that figurative cup that the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah talked about of wrath. He knows the cross is coming. He's giving himself up to it. He's not even making any effort here to save his own life by denying his very identity. Verse 69, yeah, of course it is, exactly as you would say. I will be at the right hand of the Father, of God. You go ahead and do what you're going to do. I'll be raised. I'll be seated, which is a place of prominence and authority. In other words, he's saying, you guys have this all set up. And you feel like you understand and are in control. But I'm telling you, the one who is being judged will be the judge someday. I, not you, will sit at, a, at the right hand of God, the Father. I love the fact that Jesus has complete control here. Usually when someone's being beaten, they're not under control. Not, 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 not in any way, shape, or form. But here, what do we see? Jesus, going all the way back uh, to, to chapter 18, Jesus predicted, even quoting the Old Testament, that this would come to pass. He, you go back there and you'll read that Jesus said he'll be delivered over to the Gentiles, mocked, shamefully treated, and spit upon, spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise again. Jesus is so, to be trusted in his words, because he is not speculating, he is prophesying. It's almost ironic that they want to scorn him on that front and, and blindfold him. It's ridiculous. He said this would happen. He said all the way down to Peter, you will deny me three times. Jesus' word, here's a principle that I think this passage conveys to us. That when Jesus speaks, he is to be trusted. Even the victory part, thanks be to God, he predicted that he would be raised. 
Now, let me just say a few things um, for, for application, for summary, for strategy, if you will. Looking at oneself leads, and I, I'm, I'm grouping back together here, uh, Peter and Judas a bit. But looking at self leads to remorse and ultimately destruction. I'm going back to those places, those maybe quiet, secret, subtle, or not so subtle points of failure, guilt and shame in your life. Okay, looking inward at self will lead to remorse. It may also lead to destruction in one form of another. That's what we already covered with Judas. But Peter looks at himself, leans on self, but then he remembers something. He repents and he turns. He abandons his self-reliance. He calls for help. You and I need to call for help. I've said this before. I I want this to be a church where it's okay to not be okay. To talk with, with, with honesty and humility and transparency about the areas that we need help. We need Support, accountability, prayer, encouragement, truth, friends, people with us. Peter, remember that, that instance in, earlier in the Gospels where he's uh, seeing Jesus out in the water and he begins to walk to him. And what, what do we notice? When Peter's looking at Peter or when Peter's looking at the storm, Peter is what? He is stepping out of the, 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 the boat and he's going straight into the water. But when his eyes are on Jesus... Jesus is able to take him by the hand. And I love it that Jesus here doesn't take Peter by the hand. It's with his eyes. So that leads to another strategy, another reminder. Looking at Christ leads to repentance and life. Something of a strategy here. Don't trust yourself. Don't try to defend yourself. Don't try to minimize or justify our weaknesses, our faults and our failures instead draw near to Christ. That was part of the problem. Don't you see the opening verse, verse 54? We're all glad that Peter followed him. He was going to be exposed this way. But notice what it says in verse 54. You're not noticing. Please look down. Verse 54, what does it say? And he followed them at a distance. I made it a little bit easier to deny Jesus, didn't it? And I think you should think about it in your own life. What is, what is there, if anything, that it might be something very subtle. It might be something of no, no, no major significance. But there is something or someone standing in between you and fellowship and close proximity to following Jesus. Repent. Tear it away. There are things that will and do compete, obviously, for the priority and the allegiance of Christ, and they can be more subtle than you realize. Second thing I would say is look here at, at Christ, verse 61. Luke, this is an important detail, um, and it's, it's, one that, uh, it's, it's one that only Luke includes, which I think you know, is, 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 is noteworthy, that it was only here, and we don't know how, but Jesus perhaps is being transported through the courtyard from someplace to another place. And at the very moment that the rooster crows, at the very moment that Peter denies, what happens? He catches the eye of Jesus. And they, 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 they meet eyes. 
Now, some of you self-righteous people, I'm, I'm talking to a former, uh, well, an occasional reoccurrence of me, uh, think, well, that sure was the greatest eye-rolling, see, I told you so speech uh, in the history of humanity. Peter. What happened there? We, we actually don't know. Except we could, I think it would be safe to say that whatever was communicated in that look when he denied Jesus and Jesus looked at him, whatever it was, it was the first step to Peter being restored. Whatever it was, there may have been a tinge of disappointment and sorrow, but there was hope there. There was mercy. There was compassion. There's no way to deny that. He's weeping. He meets eyes with his Savior. One of the reasons that we know it was the step towards Peter's restoration and and hope, future hope, is the fact that he has victory. He follows Jesus later. What I want to encourage you with this, do not take your sin upon yourself. Take your sin to your Savior promptly. Don't try to overcome it. Don't try to make promises. Don't try to endeavor to do better and then hopefully your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds. The gospel, the good news that God has done for us in Christ Jesus, what we cannot and will not do for ourselves. Luke makes very clear. We don't even get another mention of Peter except one more mention of Peter in the gospel of Luke after this occurrence. It says that in chapter 24, we'll read it in a few weeks, he was one who heard of the empty tomb and he ran there. But it's the gospel of Mark that tells us that later Jesus inquires of Peter, has breakfast cooking on the shore and meets after his ascension, Jesus ascended in resurrection body, meets with Peter and says, But go tell the disciples and Peter that he's going before Galilee. Then you will see him just as he told you. He went and eats breakfast with him and he says, Peter, do you love me? Second time, Peter, do you love me? Third time, wonder why? Do you love me? It was not a rebuke. It was an avenue for restoration and redemption for Peter. You see, this is what I want to close with. For, for the believer, for those of you who know the love and grace of Jesus, failure is never the last word. Quite frankly, some of you needed to be reminded of that because when it comes to persevering in love and forgiveness with others, you let failure remain fresh and you let the grace of Jesus grow stale. When you ought to let the grace of Jesus remain fresh as you humbly acknowledge in your own failures and let that wash over you and push away the bitterness in your life. And you may say to yourself, I, just, I, I, I want to, I, I plan to, I intend to. I just feel helpless. Well, feeling weak is not a bad thing. It would be wise not to despise that feeling. It might be the very avenue, the source of life and hope that is pushing you to repentance and to fall at 
the feet of the cross. Repent of your self-confidence. Repent of self-reliance. Repent of self-justification. And run to that all-sufficient merit that we sang about earlier. We know that Peter did. He didn't just weep and weep and weep with remorse. We know that he, going forward, did not have self-confidence, but he had resurrection, hope, and confidence. He charged forward, championing Christ. He was not afraid to die for the faith. He cherished the gospel and he proclaimed it. Let me close with this portion from the Apostle Peter after this occurrence. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Thanks be to God. Father, we do thank you. We do ask for your help, your aid, your involvement. You, you don't distance yourself from us. Lord, there have been times that we've allowed that distance to exist and we should draw near. And we, even in our guilt and shame, we, we, we come to you. Lord, I pray you would prompt people, even at this very moment, souls in this room, to let go of things, to surrender, to confess self-reliance or bitterness, to confess that there are things that have gotten in the way of fellowship with you and we need to cast them aside. Lord, we need a vision, a fresh vision of your identity, your power, your authority, the trustworthiness of your word, the beauty of your obedience, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Thank you for these stories. I pray for your encouragement to meet with people who are sick and Facing different diagnoses, there's even in our midst, people who are battling cancer. Meet with them, Lord. Pray for Roberta, Lord. I pray for Kathy. Lord, I pray for people that because of trials, physical, financial, relational in their workplace, stress in their life, that they are, they are tempted. They are tempted to set you aside. I pray that you, God, would mercifully Restrain, that you would mercifully reveal yourself. There is no circumstance, Lord, that would justify sin. So would you teach us faithfulness when we look to Jesus? We thank you and we pray in his name. Even now as he has taught his disciples to pray, saying, Our Father.